What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Well, look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Adam Kempinar. And I'm Josh Larson. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. That's Colin Firth and Sam Mendes' 1917, which heads into this year's Oscar ceremony with 10 nominations, including Best Picture, a film, despite it maybe being the Best Picture frontrunner, we haven't had a chance to talk about on this show, Josh. We get a chance on this week's Oscar special. The Chicago Tribune's Michael Phillips is going to join us to pick who will win, who should win, and who should have been nominated. All that and more. Does this mean we're going to have to fight about Joker again? I hope you brought your journal, Josh. All ahead on Film Spotting. Welcome to Film Spotting and welcome. Michael Phillips, you are back somehow being here with us for six plus hours. Felt like 16, frankly, <laughs> recording our top 10 films of 2019 roundtable. It didn't completely spoil you on this experience. I, you know, people used to not whine about the length of movies, and I, I don't whine about the length of the, uh, you know, the year end shows, Good. Uh, especially if I get to talk for. <laughs> You know, 16, 20 days straight yeah. like we did, wasn't it? Wasn't <laughs> That's it? about right, yeah. yeah. Certainly. <laughs> well, it's great to have you back. We did mention 1917 at the top of the show as a film we haven't given any time to. It came out right around the holidays, and of course we were really in the midst of all that year-end talk. This Oscar show will give us a chance to at least touch on that movie, and I'm not sure how much we'll dive into them, but we'll at least get to mention some movies that have otherwise not come up on the show, including the Judy Garland biopic, Judy, featuring Best Actress nominee Renee Zellweger. Though we did devote an entire show to Judy Garland last fall. You should remember that, Michael. I sung my way all the way through that one. You did that entire show, never talked about the movie that inspired the top five. Another one we skipped, Bombshell, about the Fox News sexual harassment scandal. That has two acting nominations. Clint Eastwood's Richard Jewell really didn't get any time. That has former Oscar winner Kathy Bates nominated for Supporting Actress and the Harriet Tubman biopic, Harriet with Cynthia Erivo. She was nominated for her lead performance. And we, of course, do have to throw in the obligatory mention of the two popes, both of them, Josh. Both of them nominated. Jonathan Price and Anthony Hopkins did catch up with the popes, liked the popes, had to get that out of the way. People were quite appalled. (laughs) <laughs> that I was dismissive of the Pope's nomination. So, yeah, I, I will talk about if I approve of the nomination, I do approve okay. of the film. You might still dismiss the Pope's. I might shoulder shrug a bit about the Pope's a little more. <laughs> For this Oscar preview, we are going to go through the major categories, eight of them supporting actor and actress lead actor and actress. Our podcast listeners will get our picks for original adapted screenplay and finally, of course, director and picture. We are going to make our picks for who will win, who should win, and we're going to borrow your terminology, Michael, from the Chicago Tribune. I like it. The stupid omission. Stupid omission. I'm sick of being polite. <laughs> I'm with you. I, uh, We've got crank, cranky let's, Michael Phillips today. Let's just call them for what they are. These, stupid omission. These statuettes are made of metal. They can take it. They can take name calling. Yes. You know. Yeah. Now, I don't know if you were prepared for this, but of course, for every stupid omission we want to remedy, we do have to cut one of the actual nominees. Are you prepared to do that? Ooh, ah, I like this wrinkle. Okay. It's like a wrinkle in time. Because we can't just throw in a bunch of random performances we loved. No. 
as if there aren't a finite number of spots. No, I agree. No, it's, it's easy good. to complain. It's a good – It's right. We have to think constructively there you and, go. and realistically. So yes, that's good. I like it. All right. We're going to start constructively and realistically with our picks for Best Supporting Actor. The nominees are Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, Joe Pesci as Russell Buffalino in The Irishman, Al Pacino also in The Irishman as Jimmy Hoffa, Tom Hanks, he is Mr. Fred Rogers in A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, and there's one of our popes, Anthony Hopkins, as Pope Benedict <laughs> in The Two Popes. Now, Michael, you are on the record here quite vociferously yes. as generally liking Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, except for the last 20 minutes. Yeah, hate it. The second time through, hated it more. Okay. Yep. Where do you stand on the performance of one Brad Pitt? He seems to be the front runner. Do you think he will win, and do you think he should win? Yeah, uh, absolutely will win. I think it's one of the surest bets you can make. You know, if you're if you're trying to get a coworker a little tipsy, so you can start saying things like, you know, "Let's make it interesting. Let's make the, you know." <laughs> uh, I think it's a real sure thing. Partly just because it's it's a really engaging performance. It's a great, you know, Brad Pitt is one of these. Movie stars, and this is this is an idea that cuts completely across gender and every other thing. Where you know, you know, he he was a movie star, and then fifteen twenty years later, he became a good actor, and that mm-hmm. that can happen only if you're uh, a lot lucky and a little bit smart and pick the right roles and the right directors and push yourself enough that you become a better version of yourself and as an actor. And I think that's absolutely happened with him. Um, he's certainly one of the chief satisfactions of Tarantino's film. Are you some old cowboy guy that needs to make movies there? Whoa! <laughs> what? <laughs> I'm surprised how accurate that description me really is. Some old cowboy guy that used to shoot movies at Spawn Ranch. So he used to make westerns at the ranch back in the old timey days? Well, if by the old-timey days, you mean television eight years ago. Yeah. Are you an actor? No, I'm a stuntman. Stuntman? That's way better. Why is that way better? Yeah, I think he will win for sure. Should he? I don't know. I'd rather see Joe Pesci win for The Irishman just because it's my kind of zen master re- uh, minimalism. And mm-hmm. it's just – it's I, I, that's a film I saw a second time. And uh, Pesci's contribution, which I always loved, just somehow without a speck of uh, any – visible effort just to kind of emerge as kind of the, 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 the glue of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And I, I just I just that's a picture that unlike the Tarantino film, I think the last third of what Scorsese and all the actors are up to, especially De Niro who was not nominated, but mm-hmm. I think I think I think that just becomes one of Scorsese's great films and that Pesci will now be able to go back to retirement where he came from. <laughs> happily, Josh. happily and proudly. So what's the omission? What's your stupid omission in this well, category, Well, I thought we Michael? would save those. Let's get through the obligatory will and show. Oh, okay. okay. And then, you, then we hit And it. then okay. we'll have the fun with All right, the we can most do that. important category. Okay. Well, a little bit boring here because I'm totally with you, Michael. Brad Pitt, I think, is going to win. Yes. It's his fourth nomination wow. as an actor with no wins. So his time has come, especially because here's – this is – I always try to put myself in the mind of an Academy voter based on what the tradition and the history has been. There's a showbiz element here, right? They're mm-hmm. they're playing. He's a stuntman, but he's on studio lots. This is a movie about movies. 
Academy voters can't get enough of that, plus Brad Pitt's history of those nominations without a win. I think he's a shoe-in. I'm also with you. I think it should probably go to Pesci. I mean, I'm fine with a Pitt win. Um, I really like Pitt back when he was just a movie star. So <laughs> I've kind of been with him all along. In my ranking, you know, when I had to vote in various critics groups at the end of the year, I did have Pesci ranked higher than Pitt. Um, they were both in my top five, though. What I like about Pesci, I think, too, Michael, is a um, little bit what you're talking about with uh, The Irishman. There's a book end aspect to him winning for this film, sort of a career ending film when you look at it with his previous win in Goodfellas. The fact that he would win for two performances, some people might on the surface, if they haven't watched two films, say, oh, he's doing the same thing again. No, he's not. No. He's like completely subverting and inverting that Goodfellas performance I like the, I like the bookend idea because if you look at a comparable arc with, say, Al Pacino as Jimmy Hoffa, you're not getting the kind of seasoning that uh, that that you get in the Pesci performance. A very different character. No yeah, question. I think and, that's you know, the he, distinction he, there. Yeah, Pacino's playing a very you know it's a bombastic yes. you know it's a flamboyant bombastic character, utterly the opposite. But I also think it's still two times through that film. It's it's the it's the it's the one limitation I can point to in that picture that sort of extends across most of the film is that I think hmm. Pacino and I think the the middle section of that film when it focuses more on Hoffa's you know jury tampering and all the rest of it it's just a little a little less compelling than the rest of it. We maybe didn't need all of that history. I'd agree, but I liked Pacino's performance because it matched his natural or at least this stage in his career bombast with as you said the character. I think it was mm. it was almost smart casting to that degree. If you're going to get that sort of Pacino, it is. you know, it give is. him this guy to play. Yeah. 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 40% less of a dialect whatever the hell dialect he was going for. Right. I'm not sure, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm with you guys completely on Pitt certainly winning. He has been nominated before. This is the fourth time as an actor. Josh, you mentioned twice as a lead, once for supporting for 12 Monkeys Never Won, obviously. He has won an Oscar previously as a producer, right. worth throwing in for 12 Years a Slave. Three times total he's been nominated as a producer. And I did come across this somewhere today. I have no idea if there are many more. These are just three of the names or the only three names. And what the quantity is we're speaking of, but there are at least three actors who have been nominated more times than Pitt who hmm. have not gotten an Oscar. They have not won. Bradley Cooper among them, which was kind of surprising to me. Amy Adams, Glenn Close are the three names that I saw. Oh, that's why the, cl- the close the, the close loss with yep. the wife to Olivia Coleman, right, right. for the favorite. That, that, I think that's why. Mm-hmm. That's why just last year, right? Yeah, yep. the sheer the sheer numbers, you know, of the sheer number of nominations she's had over the years. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I think Pitt will finally win. And in terms of who should win, I really like Hopkins and Hanks and Pacino. I'm convinced that I'm underrating Pacino, and it's because of this very dichotomy you guys are talking about. There is that bombast there, and I'm much more prone to like a minimal performance like Pesci over that one. But I have a feeling if I watched The Irishman again, I might really tap into it a little bit You know bit what more. happened to me the second time? And I liked it the first time, but the second time he brought a lot of humor, purposeful humor mm-hmm. with that character that did buoy the film kind of when it needed it. Again, maybe didn't need as much of him, um, but I laughed quite a bit at him part that of second it, you time You know around. what it is? I think part of it, uh, we don't have to talk about The Irishman that much, but part of it is is that by the end of the film, when those scenes where Hoffa's destiny is becoming mm-hmm, clear mm-hmm. to everybody but him, right? By that point in the film, he's no longer ha- dealing with the burden of playing 20, 30, 40 years younger than he is. 
He can mm. play an older, the oldest version of Hoffa right. we see. And the performance magically gets hmm. better. Hmm. And, and he, he does a little less than usual. But those scenes are also just really touching because he's losing control of his dynasty. And his, right. uh, you know, obviously he's losing control of his life because it's about to end. And it's, it's, it, it's just all part of that's when the film just comes yeah. together and everybody works. But, yeah, for me, that's the nomination I would have given up, frankly. Now, you said it very well, but I do, with Pesci, love the stillness of that performance and that combination of slight menace you get with the Russell Buffalino character and sorrow. And he just strikes me as an actor at this point and a character with nothing to prove to anyone. So mm-hmm. a perfect marriage there of actor and character. Now, I think you could probably say the same thing for Brad Pitt as Cliff Booth in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as well, who is my pick for who should win just edging out Pesci. It's a character actor role and performance that really requires a movie star. And of course, that's what Pitt is. Now I'm with you, Michael, overall. I liked him better or I like him better now since he became what I think is truly a good actor and not just a star. And this is the perfect marriage of that. Everyone's talked about Hollywood as the ultimate hangout movie. And it's true that a large part of the success of that film, if you do enjoy your experience with it, is predicated on how comfortable you are just being in his company, in Pitt and Cliff's company. And I love how subtle Pitt really is with the performance. I haven't had a chance yet to rewatch this film. As I said on our roundtable, I really wanted to do, but I was rewatching some scenes today. And one that really struck me is the one maybe about three quarters of the way through the film where we've seen DiCaprio now at a little bit of a low point in his career. And he's going to be on that TV show. FBI, and they pull into the driveway. Cliff, his stuntman, his best friend, and kind of all-around right-hand guy has driven him home. And at the moment where it seems like DiCaprio is going to get out of his car and go into his house, you see Pitt reach for the ignition as if he might be about to just turn the car on and get ready to back out and go. And that's when DiCaprio's Dalton says, we're going to watch my FBI. And just really slyly, (laughs) Pitt takes his hand off the ignition and he turns to him and he smiles and he says, well, I just figured we would. Mm -hmm. I got a six pack in the back, order a pizza. DiCaprio is overjoyed that they're going to have this time together, that he's going to be there to cheer him up. And you notice in that moment that he says exactly what his friend needs to hear. And he makes it seem as if he always intended to spend the night hanging out with him, even though he really probably didn't. But he knew that he couldn't make Rick beg for it. He had to make him feel like, of course, I'll be there for you, pal. That's part of the job. And that's another layer there is that he's working as well. Yes, you do believe in their friendship, but he's always working as a friend. You're right, Adam, about being comfortable hanging out with him. I think that's crucial. But the thing I really like about this performance is the layer of menace that's there, too. Sure. You know, and it comes back to that flashback with his wife that we get that was very divisive for people. And that, to me instituted this level of danger and threat and unpredictability to this character and is why I think this is a more complicated film than the people who are just cheering it as these are these are just hilarious guys to hang out with and emulate and the people who are on the other side mm-hmm. saying these are terrible men right. how could you even watch a movie about them Pitt's, Pitt's kind of walking that line down the middle uh, which is kind of the key of the performance yeah we to talked me. about him he's sinister. Yeah. Which is a word you use for him. But at the same time, unlike other Tarantino characters, he's not necessarily looking for the fight. But when the fight comes to him, he's 100 percent ready for it. And it's funny. I'll just throw in that as I was Googling something about Pitt and this character today, I did see two articles that I didn't have time 
to click on and actually consume. But I saw two articles that were like CSI Hollywood deep dives into did Cliff Booth really kill his wife or not? <laughs> and they were claiming that the evidence is there that he did not. So if you want to Google that for yourself, go for it. <laughs> I mean, I think Tarantino makes it pretty darn clear that, you know. <laughs> Apparently not, Michael. I mean, you know, and he plays it for a, he plays it for a joke more than anything. He does. Uh, that we're supposed to believe. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we're still on Best Supporting Actor, but we're going to go to The Stupid Omission. Who is the supporting actor, Michael? You just can't believe the Academy overlooked. Song Kang-ho from Parasite, who plays the father of the Kim family, um, you know, making pizza boxes for a living. And, and it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful collaboration. Uh, uh, collaboration that this actor has had with the writer, co-writer, director uh, Bong Joon-ho for, across many films. I think the first time I saw him in anything was probably the monster movie, The Host. And it's that's a wonderful, really, really act, activating performance. And I, I don't know, he's, he's just got something that if you watch him three, four movies, he's got he's got the stuff of greatness in him. And no matter how big or small or what kind of character he's playing, he's just got that spark. And I have no idea what he's accomplished, let's say, the first 10 years of his screen career. I don't know. that. I'd love to spend a week and just sort of figure out kind of the origin stories of these guys mm-hmm. as, as artists, as some, you know, people that you come to late as a, you know, in your life. And, and that's the case with this actor for me. But, yeah, it's a, I think that's, that's a crock that he didn't mm-hmm. get. And it's also an indication because the Screen Actors Guild Ensemble Award went to the entire cast of Parasite over – once Upon a Time in Hollywood, among other films, uh, you know that that's an indication of how effective all the performances are in Parasite, and his, I think, probably most crucially. Yeah. So, who are you taking out then, if you want to move in? Oh, no, I would just help. double. I would double the capacity. Right? <laughs> Did I not understand what you said? I'm sorry. No, you got it. But who would you kick out? You got to kick somebody out to make room. Chino. Okay. Yeah. yeah. That made, yeah. yeah. Uh, you should have known that. Not a bad on... performance. And God knows, not a bad performance. But but yeah, if I had a boot one, he goes. Okay. Well, if I get whacked for it. <laughs> That's the way it goes. You might yeah, be careful. You might. Uh, you're stealing my thunder again, Michael. You're you're totally correct. Song Kang Ho is the most obvious option for the Academy to go with. I mean, the, one of the praises, as you said, of of Parasite is how well it worked as an ensemble film. So what that means is you have a wealth of supporting actors yeah. and actresses to to choose from. Um, he is the one I would have gone with. Absolutely. There's something about. You're right about. Um, Song Kang-ho and his presence in Bong Joon-ho's other films, the host, I remember him being just this this kind of goofy, genial presence, even while there's a lot of chaos and craziness going on. You're just drawn to him and you want to root for him. And that is so crucial here in Parasite, where you fall in love with this family for a number of reasons, but I think primarily because of his geniality in the home. He doesn't run that home like a taskmaster. He's just kind of trying to get through things like the rest of them. Mm -hmm. And so you're on their side as they get increasingly sketchy with this richer family they become involved in. Um, But it's not just that he's, he's someone that you have an affinity for. He then taps into the deep sadness of their situation. Um, the scene again where the little boy describes the smell. And I forget if that's the moment where Song Kang-ho's father actually sniffs his own clothes. It might be later when he does that. But that little gesture and he, you know, the smell of poverty is what Mm -hmm. the boy is talking about. And as that dawns on his face, that's something he'd never considered before, but Mm -hmm. realizes what sets him and his family apart um, is just a really powerful moment for me. So, yeah, that's where I would go as well. As far as taking, I mean, I 
can I can I remove Tom Hanks? Are you allowed to do that? It's it's not that I think it's a bad performance tough, by yeah. any means, but for me, he was very good and sort of, and maybe this is where I was coming at going into that film. I was so worried about what is this going to be like to see Tom Hanks play Fred Rogers, and I was I was relieved that he didn't screw it up. And so I think mm-hmm. it's kind of that's kind of where I'm at with it. So I can see taking him out um, and I definitely can, putting I can see why. Yeah. There. Yeah. I don't know. What do you think? Adam? Well, I like Hanks's performance and I think he's going to stay in for me. I can't believe I'm going to give in on this, Josh, to you. I'm going to say one pope's enough. <laughs> I like Hopkins. I like the performance. I like Good the man. movie, but I could see Hopkins going, and we're going to make it three for three. It is Song Kang Ho as the stupidest omission in this category. And I saw a quick interview with him that I think the LA Times did, where they asked him about this character, and he basically said, Look, he's a pretty ordinary guy. And he pointed out that he actually doesn't have deep discussions with Bong about any of the characters he plays. And he told the interviewer that he didn't draw any inspiration from any real life characters because he said, For him, this man, this father, is more of a metaphor, a symbolic character. And he, of course, is when you think about the role he plays in this story, he does represent, as the family probably as a whole does, but particularly this character, he represents the consequences of capitalism and of class divide. And it's a credit to Song that he embodies all of that and he carries the weight of all that without ever sacrificing his humanity. He does play a flesh and blood person, not a metaphor, and yet does have the burden of what his character ultimately stands for. But you get that humanity. You do get even just that little bit of goofiness, a little bit from some of those Bong Joon-ho performances. And at the same time, there's that melancholy, too, even though you don't really necessarily get that sense of shame about him until later as he has more interactions with the other wealthier family. But that performance, and I think this is true of the whole ensemble, is really what's so key, I think, in our ability as viewers to root for that family, despite the fact that they are conning this other family, a family that really hasn't done anything ostensibly wrong, and for us to ultimately see it as a tragic con and to see his character as a tragic character. So we are in agreement on Song Kang Ho. We'd each kick out different performers, but overall, I think the Academy did pretty well with Best Supporting Actor. That brings us to Best Supporting Actress. Josh, the nominees are... Kathy Bates for Richard Jewell, Laura Dern for Marriage Story, Scarlett Johansson for Jojo Rabbit, Florence Pugh for Little Women, and Margot Robbie for Bombshell. Michael, who will win this Oscar? Laura Dern for Marriage Story. I think that's as sure a sure thing as Brad Pitt for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And I think she should win. She should? Yes. Okay. Yes. I, I, I just think she's done the kind of work long enough and, and interestingly enough, and especially if you factor in the TV work, which, of course, doesn't necessarily. But it, it does affect an Oscar voter's perception of somebody. Mm-hmm. And um, now that the two platforms, movies and television, are just utterly – there's no boundary anymore for quality. If anything, you know, all the, the, the burden of mediocrity lies more on the film side than TV right now. And she just has a, a great crap cutter's way of getting to the heart of every scene and always always brings a certain level of intensity that's – uh, that a lot, a lot of a lot of actors don't, and and I just think she's like a lot of what I love about Marriage Story. It's 
utterly sincere one second, and it's and you're laughing in in ways you don't, you're not even sure why until the line reading and, and the line of dialogue is over mm-hmm. and gone. You know, I just love the first scene she does with Scarlett Johansson in the in the office. That's a long scene yeah, where we're is. getting to know these characters in a very leisurely way, and every second of it is valuable. How old's your son? Henry's eight. Mm. He likes L.A. I don't know if it's fair to him. I want you to listen to me. What you're doing is an act of hope. You understand that? Yeah. You're saying I want something better for myself. You do. And this right now is the worst time. It will only get better. Wasn't it Tom Petty who said the waiting is the hardest part? Uh, I I represented his wife in their divorce. I got her half of that song. Josh, where are you at with Dern? Well, uh, you know, you make a compelling argument, and uh, Um, maybe you you make the correct Correct. argument, but I'm going to go a different way. We'll split our ballots here. Maybe this is where I can pull ahead. I'm going to take a chance that Florence Pugh is going to actually win Mm. this because, again, just looking at history, often this is the—it can be the award, career award— category, as you're talking about, with Laura Dern, but it can also be the ingenue category. You're absolutely right. A lot, um, lot of advice. A lot of wow, advice yeah. we, you know, we've talked already about the year that Florence Pugh has had, um, and I can just see voters deciding this is going to be the fresh face we're going to anoint. Also, um, you know, you, I'm starting to wonder, and maybe this will come up in other categories, if voters are starting to feel, even though Little Women did receive, I think, six nominations, um, the, the volume of the backlash that it didn't receive more and might start thinking, okay, you know what, well, we, we should probably give it something and this might be one way to go. Hmm, so hmm. I'm going to say that Florence Pugh will win it. I do think she should as well. Laura Dern was in my top five again when I voted in this category, but I had Pugh slightly ahead of her just for that redemption of Amy performance that she gives and that Gerwig wrote for her in that part, this different vision of uh, Amy that I had read, honestly, in the Louisa May Alcott novel and mm-hmm. also had seen in other adaptations. So so I do hope that Pugh wins. I've always known I would marry Rich. Why should I be ashamed of that? It's nothing to be ashamed of, as long as you love him. Well, I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. Well, I'm not a poet. I'm just a woman. And as a woman, there's no way for me to make my own money. Not enough to earn a living or to support my family. And if I had my own money, which I don't, that money would belong to my husband the moment we got married. And if we had children, they would be his, not mine. They would be his property. So don't sit there and tell me that marriage isn't an economic proposition because it is. Laura Dern right now is my pick for who will win. And Michael, you mentioned that scene, that big scene she has that includes a pretty considerable monologue with Scarlett Johansson, Mm -hmm. where she gives a great speech about being a woman and the expectations of being a woman historically. And I think there are a lot of genuine truths there. And I love a lot of her performance. And I would love for her to win, honestly, just because she is such a stellar actress who's put in so much good work over the years. But I've really been wrestling with what it was about that character and that performance and particularly something about that scene with Johansson that always kind of rubbed me the wrong way a little bit about 
Dern and her performance in this film. And in that scene in particular, you're talking about the first one. And I love many other scenes with her in the movie, including that great monologue she has where she talks about the expectations that have been put on women and mothers over the years and the impossible standard that they are held to. I think there's a lot of genuine truth there in that monologue. But in that first scene, there was something about the performance that always just felt a little bit too calculated to me. Mm -hmm. And I seem to be the only person who feels this way. So I'm bringing it up here for you guys to shoot me down. But I did watch a promotional clip that Netflix put out a little behind the scenes thing with some of the cast and crew. And in it, Noah Baumbach, the writer and director, says of Dern and her character that that scene had to be a seduction, Hmm. which it really kind of is. Obviously, her convincing the Scarlett Johansson character to take her on as her attorney and let her represent her and really get what is due her as the aggrieved in this marriage as it's ending. And he said of her, this isn't your friend, really, but for the moment, she is your friend. And I think my issue with it is that Dern needs to be aware that her character, Nora, is seducing Nicole, but I don't think Nora can be aware that she's seducing Nicole. Nora just has to come off as this hurricane of empathy and righteousness. And for me, I did see the calculation in it as if Nora knows that she's playing a little bit of a game here and seducing (laughs) Johansson. And when when you're aware of that, then the spell on Nicole, I think, is broken a little bit. At least it was for me. The subtext of that scene kind of became the text for me. Uh, but am I overanalyzing? No, I like that. I like that line. I think I think you you finish that scene as a viewer. I'm trying to think of the first time I saw that film. I think I think the impression I had of Nora Dern's character was, in a tantalizing way, unclear. Yeah. You know how much of a weasel are we dealing with? Mm-hmm. How much of a kind of a what? How how. You know, is there is there a level of exploitation, financial? Right. You know, what what is going on? And the fact that she keeps you utterly guessing is, I think, in the end, a real strength of that performance. And in the end, I think you get to know her, you know, in a in a different way than that first scene reveals. But it's essentially, it, it's I wouldn't call it a con job, but it's a very very tricky kind of illusion she's trying to create. Yes. And, yeah. and but I don't I don't think it makes her. Less than dimensionally human, and I, I guess I'm just so relieved by almost every portrait of every female character in Marriage Story that it doesn't settle for demonizing or mm-hmm. cheap-shotting anybody. And, yeah. and again, I saw – this is based on a recent reviewing of Kramer versus Kramer, a film that has just reduced to the size of a pea in my, in my estimation, uh, especially in relation to Marriage Story, different as those films are. But that's, yeah, I think Dern's great, mm-hmm. but she does. It's it's ambiguous in the right way, I think. Yeah, maybe I'm just too confounded by it. I well, think you, that level yeah. of calculation is important because, you know, we, we don't entirely want to be in the mindset of Nicole. We want to empathize with her to a degree, but we're also starting to see here that she, it is a trap. She's about to take a first step into this machine of divorce lawyers, this the machinery around them. Mm-hmm. And so part of us needs to see that yet, yes, Dern is giving her exactly what she needs to hear in this moment, but is this still the right path to go down? And so I think yes. that balance is, it, it works for me in that mm-hmm. scene. Yeah. So Dern probably will win. I'm with you, Josh, that I wouldn't mind seeing at all Florence Pugh pull off the upset here. She is the performer I'd like to see win the Oscar for Best Supporting Actress. There was an article in The Atlantic 
that came out back in December after we reviewed Little Women that really went into the details on something that I could only speculate about during our review. And you also touched on this just a moment ago, which is that redemption of Amy. The headline of that piece, which I'll link to in our show notes at filmspotting.net, is Greta Gerwig's Little Women Gives Amy March Her Due. The subhead is the youngest sister from Louisa May Alcott's novel remains as spoiled as ever in the latest film adaptation, but she's finally afforded the depth that's missing from previous movies. And you certainly see that, I think, with Gerwig's adaptation and the overall approach to it. But it does take the right actress to tap into that depth. And Pew does that. Yes, she is still vain and she's immature and she's selfish, but she's intelligent and she's talented like all the March girls are. And she really does understand the complexities of her place in the world. And she burns with love just like some of the other characters do. And I think Pew portrays all of that without it ever feeling like it's contradictory in any way. She just embodies all of those traits. And I think she does make Amy ultimately as fascinating as Joe. And I love the fact that the movie can have those two characters, really all of the March sisters, be sort of on that level without it needing to be, well, she's just the kind of upstart rival who's there to to confound Joe and to be a thorn in her side. Gerwig saw a lot of that in Amy on the page, but drew it out in her adaptation, and she found the right actress to pull it off in Pew. I think Amy and Joe in those performances are clearly the most modern elements of the picture, and and that's by design. The other two March sisters are just they're they're more nineteenth century, mm-hmm. and 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 in the right way, I think Gerwig decided. I want to I want to keep these two in particular close to my heart, maybe closer to my own experience, and closer to the century we're now living in, mm-hmm. and 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 the fact that that was accomplished. Uh, without whacking out the sense of authenticity of the picture, and I don't mean like period perfect documentary authenticity, but just sort of like a movie that hangs together. You know, mm-hmm. it's amazing, amazing. And and honestly, when Pew's name came up on the on the nominations, I thought, yeah, absolutely good. <laughs> so yeah, I'd love it if she. Got, I wouldn't mind if she won. Yeah. I, but I, I still think Dern's. You know, for, for you know, I just think it's it, it's a sure thing. Uh, in terms of what I mentioned earlier about getting some friend of yours tipsy if you're you know, trying to get money <laughs> out of them on, on betting, in a betting yep. situation. Yeah. Pew has a streak of humor I think she brings to that part too where you know it could be played for petulance and I think often has mm-hmm. and you could read it that way in the novel. But yeah, it's it's a nice how it's refracting your experience of reading what's on the page because seeing Pew and how she plays the humor, you can see it there as well. Originally, it's just, it's just emphasizing it, choosing mm-hmm. that that's a character trait, I'm going to really kind of double down on and make part of my performance. So it works. And Michael, in terms of those two characters, Joe and Amy, feeling like they're more modern, Gerwig in that article points out that one of the lines that stuck with her when she was reading Little Women one of the more recent times as she was adapting it was a line that Amy says, which is, I want to be great or nothing. And that's in the movie. And she's talking about her work as an artist. Mm -hmm. It has to be greatness or nothing that seems like a very modern thought and yet that was in the original material so it is all about kind of what you what you choose to focus on yeah absolutely Yeah, yeah yeah that brings us to the stupid omission in this category. Did the Academy just blatantly miss someone, Michael? You can count on that every time. Mm-hmm. Every time you can count on that. It was Zhao Shuzhen from The Farewell. She plays Nai Nai, the grandmother of the Aquafina character. And it's just it's just a wonderful, you know, warm center uh, for a film that is very rigorously controlled and in, in some ways kind of cool to the touch, but but absolutely emotionally 
plangent and true, I think, all the way through. And I, I just think I love the performance, and I, I and I, that film would not be the same without it. So, yeah, that dumb omission. Okay. Yeah. What about you? Whose spot is she taking? Oh, my God. <laughs> Margot Robbie in Bombshell. Yeah. I, I'm only okay on Bombshell. I think Robbie's damn talented but and very good in that, but I think it's that's not a performance or or a film that necessarily is for the ages. Okay, fair enough. Mm -hmm. Well, my stupid omission um, in this category, I'm going to get to a farewell omission in a later one, Michael, but here I'm going to say why didn't they go with Julia Pinoche in High Life? I mean, maybe Academy voters didn't see High Life. The <laughs> I, I Claire, don't think they saw The High Claire Life. Denis um, yeah. Yeah. sex space epic, I guess you could call it. Um, but yeah, that witch doctor that Pinoche played is still, yeah, terrifying. And as far as who to remove, this is one of the categories I'm going to have to confess. Not only have I missed Bombshell, but I missed Richard Jewell as well. So, so it sounds like maybe Margot Robbie is the one to be removed. But what? where did this Kathy Bates nomination come from? Well, what is did it, you good? See, what is it with you, good? Richard Jewell? What is it with you with, with anything that either re- refers to a bomb in the title or, or <laughs> is about that, a bomb? I guess that must be it. But tell me about Kathy Bates. Is, is this, did that strike you as a performance that might have been nominated when you first saw it? I, it, it you know, it did, frankly, and mm-hmm. I, it's one of the it's one of the successful elements of a pretty mixed bag of a movie. I mean, I mean, the best scenes in Richard Jewell, I think, are, are the are the most in a way the most off plot and the most confined and claustrophobic, where we're just simply sitting around the apartment living room while they're basically on lockdown mm-hmm. you know, with the wrongly accused uh, Paul Walter Hauser character, Richard Jewell, the title. Uh, and, and it's just really just kind of getting some back and forth, some sense of how this mother-son dynamic works, at least according to the screenwriter and the director, Clint Eastwood. That's when the, that's when the movie gets interesting. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's bogus and kind of galling but Bates is you know but you know just true north every second yeah. you know, and she's mean, got I mean, a big Oscar scene where she gets to make totally. this emotional plea for her son on camera in front of all the media that Bates of course nails as you would expect but I'm with you I think it's every other scene in the movie that's even more rewarding than that with her and Paul Walter Hauser's character just right. being mother and son and right. Bates is you're right she's just legit. She's always going to give you a good performance. And I certainly wouldn't kick Kathy Bates out at all here, Josh. For me, it would be. I'm going with Margot Robbie. I don't know if that's the the right pronunciation or not of Margot Robbie, but the right name is maybe here in Robbie because I would have rather seen her nominated for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood as Sharon Tate. Well, that would have been better, Michael, at least give me that, than this performance in Bombshell. Mm. (laughs) I mean, this... This there should be no hesitation on Michael because Bombshell is not only a a pretty bad movie, but and we'll maybe get into it a little bit more as we get to our lead actress category in a little bit. But I think she's my understanding is that the Kayla character she plays is the only amalgam of a real person or the only key character who's not a real person. And not that the real people fare any better in Bombshell, but that's exactly what that character feels like an amalgam of a real person. You There's nothing she says believe, or does at yeah, any point don't believe that is believable. Yeah, yeah. No, entertain. I felt bad for a performer as good as Margot Robbie having to play that character. Oh, I agree. And and the other the other chief amalgam sort of composite character in that in that docudrama is the Kate McKinnon character. And and the whole idea of this sort of 
closet lesbian and sort of the tentative affair these two have. Yeah, I, I believe it in the confines of Fox News Network, not at all. Right. You know, at least as as acted here. I mean, yes. it's plausible enough on paper in theory and utterly yes, utterly as it's depicted. Yeah, and it's it's got that smug liberal sort of stance that is exactly what a, a real life smug liberal like myself tends to resist in the movies. So, mm-hmm. yeah, that's my thing. Well, in terms of who should be in, I think J-Lo for Hustlers is probably the obvious answer. It might even be the right answer. Josh, you may recall that when we talked about the movie Crazy Rich Asians a while back, I said Constance Wu was a bona fide movie star, couldn't wait to see what she does next. And next to J-Lo and that wattage, she just wilts completely next to her. It's really an unfortunate kind of performance. So I do think J-Lo deserves some recognition here. But Michael, if I had to pick, the stupidest omission mm-hmm. is, you're right, Zhao Shuzin as yes, Nai Nai yes. for The Farewell. She's a character you do have to obviously feel for, but you can't pity her as a character, knowing the secret that the family does, that she's the only character in the film who doesn't know. And she has that sharp sense of humor And there is a little bit of toughness to her. And ironically, because she's clueless about this key secret, there's self-awareness. She really knows who she is, what she's done with her life, who her family is, how she feels about them, and how they feel about her. But there does also have to be a real warmth to her. And I think that really comes through in that character. There is that genuine affection for everyone in her family, even as she does see every one of their faults. And that whole notion of her just sort of getting up and attacking the day every day and living a life without regrets. I just I just loved it. She was my favorite part of The Farewell. Yeah, no, it's great. I can't wait to see that one again. I've just seen it the one time. But yeah, me yeah, too. yeah, no, and she's, she's uh, but there's a lot of reasons to see that one a second time. We then go to the screenplay categories. Categories in the past, Josh, we have overlooked on the show, which is probably appropriate talking about Hollywood and the Oscars, that we're going to ignore the writers and not give them enough credit. (laughs) We're going to try to fix that here as we go to the nominees for Best Adapted Screenplay. Is it The Irishman, Stephen Zalian, Jojo Rabbit, screenplay by Taika Waititi, Joker, written by Todd Phillips and Scott Silver, Little Women, written for the screen by Greta Gerwig, or The Two Popes, written by Anthony McCartan, adapting his own material. Who will win? Who should win? Michael Phillips. Okay, I made these predictions for the Tribune a few days ago, and and life moves on like the river it is. It flows, and and you realize that you're about to hit the rock of error. And I I think... (laughs) A devoted reader. A a poetic way to to say you're flip-flopping. Thank you. I'm flip-flopping, and I I was predicting that Taika Waititi was going to win for Jojo Rabbit, and I don't think he will. I think it's, I think the should win is going to win, and that's Greta Gerwig for Little Women. I think even though it's a divisive adaptation of of Little Women, and I know a lot of people... Who are these people? Because I will fight them You will right fight now. them. You will fight, well, it'll be an ugly misogyny, <laughs> yeah. f- uh, you know, situation there, but... Uh, I think the risks that Gerwood takes with really breaking this story into, you know, a very interesting web of flashbacks and present-day action is a little challenging for some people. And I, in fact, got lost once or twice momentarily about, okay, exactly where am I now? And, you know, we all have a little bit of a linear thing in us. You know, you need you need it sometimes a little more than others. But I think, I think everything she did in terms of what you mentioned earlier – Adam, which is you know where do I where do I pull the source material from? It's not just the Alcott novel. A lot of it's coming from um, Alcott's letters. Mm-hmm. A lot of it's you know a lot of it just comes from Gerwig's own 
uh, empathetic imagination uh, and 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 her real mastery of figuring out okay how do I make these people speak plausibly and and to us today and keep them in period enough enough yeah and and that I think the accomplishment's huge and I, I hope you know I think she should win and I, I think she will win and I think if Watiti ends up winning for Jojo Rabbit I hereby retract this retraction oh man you gotta Dump on Jojo Rabbit? Yeah, I, yeah, I got it. Uh-huh. Yeah, I well, know. I, I don't love, think I love Waititi, but I, I just to me, I never figured out the tone, and I, I could never get comfortable with sort of even even though there, I was laughing at some of mm-hmm. <laughs> this, but I just I had the life is beautiful reaction. I just mm-hmm. couldn't. Okay, could, okay. Couldn't ease into with this Holocaust tar warmer, man. <laughs> that's that's fine. I, I mean, I, I think he balances the tone really well. It's pretty audacious. I don't think. It will win. I don't think it should win. I have a choice for what should win, and I'm with you. I think it should be Greta Gerwig. I think it will be Greta Gerwig. Oh, I wonder okay, if okay. this might be, as I mentioned earlier, a situation where voters are like, "Yeah, we're you know we maybe should have given more attention to Little Women," and and here's the place where we can do it in the um, adapted screenplay category. I mean, I'd be happy with uh, really with Waititi Gerwig or Steve Zalian for oh really the Irishman. Script. I really mean, when you script. think about um, the structure that uh, that that has to have, and then in addition to that, the more focused miniature scenes that are so well written. I think that's. Certainly deserving, but I do think the screenplay, for all the wonderful things about Little Women, I do think the screenplay is the strongest aspect um, for the qualities that you talked about, Michael, and it should probably be recognized as such. Yeah. Look, as, as, as Joe Pesci says in The Irishman, it's what it is. It's what it is. And I hope it is what it is, Greta Gerwig winning. She is my pick for who will win. She's obviously my pick for who should win, considering my love for that film, my second favorite movie of 2019. I'm with you too, Josh, that I wonder if... The fact that it's probably going to get snubbed, unless you're right about Pew, it's probably going to get snubbed in the other five categories that Little Women is nominated for. Maybe their response to the backlash will be to give Gerwig. She didn't get the director nomination that she, spoiler alert, should have gotten, but she could win and should win for Best Adapted Screenplay. And we've kind of touched on it, but for the way she elevated Amy, for that nonlinear structure, Michael, you talked about that emphasizes Joe's awakening as an artist and de-emphasizes the romance without depriving us of the movie's romantic pleasures. And I think there are many of them. Solving the problem, as you called it, Josh, of Professor Bear, and it's not just in the casting. It's not a problem. Okay. Well, it's not just (laughs) in the casting of Louis Garrel. It's in the structure and how we're introduced to him, the way every character gets a key moment or two, including someone like Chris Cooper, who is mostly on the periphery of the film. Otherwise, and just that rhythm of the writing and how it meshes with her visual storytelling, they're just perfectly in sync. In terms of stupid omission, this was a really tough one for me because I did try to think about this category, if you will, in terms of not just the ones I wanted to see get a nomination, but the ones that had a realistic chance. They were in the conversation. The pundits were batting their names around. And there wasn't one for me that stood out then if you're trying to meet that criterion. Josh, what about you? Yeah, well, that's the hard thing. Like when I mentioned Julia Pinoche in High Life, there was no way it had a chance. So I got that by going to my personal votes in our critics groups and what did I have in my top five. Um, And she was definitely there. And I'm going to do the same thing here. I mean, there's no way that the Academy was going to nominate Christian Petzold for the screenplay to transit. Hmm. But But it was on my ballot. It was on my ballot. And I think it's, uh, you know, just adapting another adaptation of an older novel here, a 1944 novel by Anna Seegers. And it's very similar to what Gerwig did, actually, now that I'm thinking about it, because that was, he complicated 
what was already a complicated setting by placing us in this vague, you know, that was a 44 novel, and he moves it to this vague contemporary occupied But also France. kind of in the past. Yeah, yeah that, that just totally destabilizes you <laughs> at the beginning. So that's what I would throw in there. As far as what I would take out, um, I do love many things about Joker. I don't think the screenplay is, you know, yes. necessarily the strongest aspect of it. As a matter of fact, for all the back and forth we've had about Joker, you know, I didn't have it in many of my top five categories mm-hmm. of the year. We'll maybe get to one where I did. Well, I would not surprisingly be kicking Joker down the stairs here in this category. We don't Love need those to stairs from Joker anymore. And I would replace Joker if I could. And this is another one, Josh. It really didn't have a chance at all. But I would replace it with the screenplay for The King, the adaptation of Henry IV and Henry V by Joel Edgerton and David Mishad, a film that is available on Netflix. And I think... Again, like Greta Gerwig, we'll name check her again. They found a way as screenwriters to stay faithful to the structure of the original material and the characterizations of especially the main characters, Prince Hal, played by Timothy Chalamet, and Falstaff, who is played by Edgerton. But they put a new lens on it, and it's one that is less blatantly heroic and jingoistic and one that's a lot more cynical and feels way more timely. And they took some bold swings in the adaptation that worked that I won't get into without having to spoil what makes the king interesting. And I suppose spoiling Henry the fourth and Henry the fifth, if you haven't done your English homework recently. But that's a film that I really appreciated and their choices as adapters of the material was a key reason why. Michael, any gotta see out it. for you? I have to see that film. I have not seen that. Well, I kind of don't want you to because <laughs> I'm sure you're not going to like it. No, no, and you'll no. Make me feel I, bad about no, it. I won't. I won't overtly make you uh-huh. feel bad about it. But uh, I, I mean, I, I look. I messed up this whole category because when <laughs> I had Lulu Wang's The Farewell as as my stupid omission for best adapted screenplay because I assumed without looking, and also a couple other people out there online and mm-hmm. and elsewhere in the film world made the same mistake. A24, the distributor of The Farewell, submitted this script for original material. It's the best original screenplay, which it did not get a nomination for. But I assume because it's taken from uh, this American Life episode that it was adapted. So wrong, a wrong assumption, incorrect. Mm-hmm. So there I am, you know, hanging out to dry with absolutely no other stupid omission in my, in my head enough. right now. So let's, can we move on? Yeah, let's get back I, to I got, I might, look, more the Honda positive Fit, The Honda Fit is running. My car is running. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> best original screenplay then, Michael. Original screenplay. Michael, the nominees are. Here we go. Noah Baumbach for Marriage Story, Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won, Parasite, Ryan Johnson, Knives Out, Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson-Cairns for 1917, and Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time, Ellipses, in Hollywood. Those are the five. Uh, this is uh, this is super duper easy. Uh, Will win Bong Joon-ho, Han Jin-won, Parasite, should win Parasite. Uh, Parasite should just win. They should win Best Podcast. I don't care if it isn't. I agree. I mean, there's nothing. <laughs> isn't. Yeah. And I, and how do you? Is anybody going to fight me on this yeah, one? Josh, well, I argue. I love your optimism. I think it's completely misguided and and woefully unaware of, of Hollywood voters voting for a screenplay not in English. I don't know. It's a, you, you really think I, they are going story, to do that? I think so. On a story level, a, 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 oh, I'm not arguing it's, ma- it's deserving. Well, I don't even mean. I, I don't even. I just mean. I wonder if this anecd- has happened before. I, I should, probably should have looked this up. Mm-hmm. If there has been a foreign language script that has won 
an we Oscar. Should, but maybe we should look this up. You know, can, I, I, we, can we just look up Benini for uh, Life Is Beautiful? Because I that would depress the hell fear out of that it might have won. Okay, you're going after Jojo Rabbit again. I see where this is headed. <laughs> well, here's okay. Let me tell you what I think is going to happen. For me, it was a process of elimination in this category as far as who will win. Knives Out not nominated enough elsewhere. Marriage Story. There's a pretty strong anti-LA vibe to that movie. I think it's one of the interesting things about it. Yeah. I don't know how well. Again, Academy voters will take that. Hmm. 1917, the screenplay just is not its showiest achievement. We can get to the fact of does it even deserve a nomination here? Parasite, as I said, not English. I don't. I, I would like to think that that wouldn't be a problem for Oscar voters, um, but I guess I don't have a lot of faith in them. So that leaves me with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Now, I know Tarantino has won twice before for screenplay, including, interestingly enough, I wouldn't have guessed this one, Django Unchained, but uh, I think he's going to do it again. Now, who should win? I'm with you, Michael. Parasite should win. I'd be happy with Knives Out as well. I mean, the clockwork Mm -hmm. intricacy to that screenplay is why that movie works so well. Um, But yeah, Parasite, it is all about the story, the basic structure of that mystery, that thriller, um, the way it works as metaphor, but also works as a gripping story on the surface level, it's absolutely deserving. It should win. And I would love to have Oscar voters prove me wrong. I mean, I, you know what? I think you're probably right. And, and here I'm sticking to my guns. I actually think Tarantino will win because that is the default win every time. And, and I think I share your sort of surprised at the memory, the fact that he did win for Django Unchained. That, you know, it's just, Watch it. Josh likes it. And now so let's do I, not, Michael. Uh, yeah, we, we did this already at the top 10 round <laughs> you thought table. You had so. a colleague in disdain for Tarantino, but all right, he's uh, on QT's side on well, this Well, that's the last time I make eye contact with Josh Larson, <laughs> I think. But, uh, I mean, look, like every year at the Oscars in almost every major category, all you have to do is look at the money, and that explains why these movies are here. Parasite is here because it made $200 million worldwide. Yeah, that's in its favor. Knives Out, you know, made a, its profit four times over. 1917's already well into profit. Tarantino's movie, which cost almost a hundred million dollars, you know, a solid a solid earner at like a quarter billion or whatever. It's all there on the page, and it's got dollar signs on it. And that that uh, that. Is it cynical to look at that as like, well, this is the reason these are the five? Well, these are also in many ways terrific scripts, in some ways less so. But I know for me, I don't know. What Mm -hmm. do you think, Adam? Yeah, I did have Parasite as my will win at first pass. But the more I thought about it, I think that the Academy is going to come back to the movie about movies. They're going to go with a familiar choice. And I think they're going to remember those DiCaprio scenes, the trailer, the ones on set when he's performing within the performance. And that just seems to be what is appropriate for a best screenplay winner. And I think I'm as as guilty of anyone of this sometimes when I talk about what I think should win. I'm with you. It completely should be Bong Joon-ho and Han Jin-won for Parasite, which is sometimes we make the mistake, the Academy definitely does, of thinking that the most acting is the best acting or the most writing is the best writing. Mm-hmm. And you think about this category, Marriage Story, obviously is so dialogue heavy, and it could be a play. Knives Out 2 feels like it could be, honestly, a stage play, but also just the humor and how all the puzzle pieces fit together. I want to be clear, I'm not saying that either of those films shouldn't win. I love both of them, and I'm glad that they are nominated, but it's not that they're necessarily more deserving than a movie like Parasite, because Parasite feels, I would contend anyway, feels like a movie that's more of a director triumph than a writing triumph. But when you really break it down, 
all those structural twists and turns and the ambiguity of who the good guys really are and who the bad guys are and the way it somehow juggles being a family drama and a con movie and a horror movie and a socioeconomic satire. And you could throw 10 other genres out here. It's all of those things and yet never feels really disparate or as if it's a mishmash of different tones. That's that's on the page. Yeah. I'm guessing that's on the page. Yeah, no, absolutely. In addition to yeah. what Bong Joon-ho brings to the screen visually. So I really do hope that Parasite wins. All right, you guys are persuasive enough. That I'm going to retract my will win, and I'm going to jump on the bandwagon. No, I think, you know, I, I bet yeah. Tarantino will win. Wins it. Damn it. Yeah. I yeah. was just flashing ahead to Sunday night, February 9th, and in my head, they are saying his name. They're saying Quentin Tarantino. You're having name. a vision. Yeah, a I'm vision. having a vision. I'm, I'm Harriet <laughs> having a vision. What I thought of. Of wow. the future. Okay, so a stupid omission in this category Michael, anything jump yeah, out to you? Yeah, yeah. Jordan Peele for us is yeah. as messy as that script is in some ways compared to Get Out. It, it is it is still the most stimulating, overlooked, really good movie of 2019, I mm-hmm. think. In fact, it came out when it did early in the year. Didn't help, I think, a lot. of, But, but the fact that he got an audience, a big audience, as big an audience for that picture as he did for the much more audience-friendly Get Out and made a completely different sort of picture that in its own way mashes up genres as wildly as Parasite does for different ends. but uh, And a lot of similar ones. Yeah, yeah. That's right. No, that's true. And and I, I, that's that's my pick all the way. Okay. I think Peel is just, you know, like, l- l- great let, choice. let's reward him while he's yes. this hot. Yeah. Right? Yeah. I mean, as, as my number one film of the year, I'm, I completely agree with you. I, I would say it is as clockwork as the script for Knives Out, uh, even though it's very different in a lot of ways. Um, the hopeful one, this is, again, you know, something that I voted for, but there's no realistic chance that Celine Sciamma would be nominated by the Academy Awards. Also, in another language, that's one thing probably against it. But Portrait of a Lady on Fire, the way she matches the Brontes with her own original Gothic romance um, just wowed me. So either of those, um, I think, would have been better inclusions. And I probably, as I said, 1917 is just a movie I liked You know, just fine. I think there's some very impressive things about it. I think there are some limitations to it. Maybe we'll get to that. But the screenplay is not what I would point to no. as its greatest strength. Yeah. So to echo what you just said, I can't complain too much about these nominees because four of the five were on my Chicago Film Critics ballot. The one exception would be Sam Mendes and Christy Wilson-Carnes for 1917. And we got this note from Kevin, a listener in Clinton, Tennessee. He said, this is an otherwise stacked category with unreal great scripts from Ryan Johnson, Quentin Tarantino, the likely winner. He says, hmm. Noah Baumbach and Bong Joon-ho, whose screenplay co-written by Han Jin-wan is one of the most memorable of the decade. A screenplay for 1917 seems almost irrelevant given the lack of depth and character and even story itself. Why are they there? Here, here. Where is Lulu Wong? The Safdie brothers, Jordan Peele. Ari Aster, and I'm with Kevin. There are legitimately 30 to 40 screenplays from the year I would nominate ahead of 1917. Some of them have been mentioned. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. Even Midsummer, which I didn't love, I would say is more deserving. Uncut Gems, definitely. The Almodovar film Pain and Glory. My Beloved, though some who I won't mention revile it. Ad Astra, even, I would say, is a better screenplay than 1917. Michael, A Hidden Life, the Terrence Malick film. But if I had to pick, I'm going to steal your choice your misguided choice or what? wrongly categorized choice originally, The Farewell, <laughs> yes, Lulu yes, Wong. Yes. I'm going to go ahead and swap that over to Best Original Screenplay and said when I think about the humor of that and the heart of that film, it yeah, stupid really yeah. is 
a wonderful little movie and certainly more deserving than 1917. But there will be some more 1917 talk, I imagine, as we get deeper into our categories. Yes, the Oscars go on and on, and so will this preview show. We do have more picks to come, along with a Michael Phillips starring edition of Massacre Theater. Stay with us. I've worn the stones in front of your doorstep Coming and going, coming and going You kept the lights on, I always knew that I should have said thank you a thousand miles ago But I pushed you away, put a pen in a map Then I got lost in the storm Had to find my way, make my own mistakes But you know that I had to go Ain't no Stronger than stone Ain't no place like home Ain't no place like home As the Secretary General of the United Nations, an organization of 147 member states who represent almost all of the human inhabitants of the planet Earth... I sent greetings. That's Jeff Bridges and the sound of Karen Allen fainting in 1984, Starman, directed by John Carpenter. Next week, we are going to kick off our latest shenanigans, Michael Phillips, our 8 from 84 series, a sequel to our incredibly successful 9 from 99 series. We're calling it 8 from 84. I like it. It starts with Starman. And I'm curious if you can recall... The last time either of you saw John Carpenter's Starman. 1984. Okay. <laughs> I haven't seen it since then. Yeah? No, I haven't. I, I can't think I'm with you, you, at least in its entirety, uh, for I, sure. I, a few scenes over the years, maybe, but... You couldn't ask a dumber guy on Starman <laughs> to talk about it. Well, you don't have to. You, you can take next, <laughs> take next week off. Um, yeah, I think, as well, I said... I, this... thought, I thought podcasts were about, you know, like, okay, I haven't seen it, but I'm just going to fake it. Right? Isn't that, we, should give, been, we should give that a try. 15, yeah, should. I mean, 15 years? You guys, all right. Uh, no, I have. I really, yeah. truly haven't. How well, about that's, you, Joe? That's yeah, why I we do these series largely is to either remedy some blind spots or to revisit films that we haven't seen in a couple decades. And that's true for Starman. Yeah, definitely been a couple decades for me. It, as I said, I think it was – I know I saw it at, on VHS – at some friend's house. <laughs> yeah. So that's got a place at late 80s. Right? So you're yeah. saying it's yeah. still rewinding. Yeah, <laughs> possibly. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> More about the other titles we're planning to get to in the series at filmspotting.net slash 8 from 84. And while you're there, we hope you will vote in the current film spotting poll, which asks you this. What is the best film of 1984? Not all of these films are part of our series, but we want to know which one you think is the best. And so far... Josh, listeners are in agreement with 84 Oscar voters that it's Amadeus. And friend of the show, Brett Merriman in L.A., put it simply, it's called Amadeus Math. Take the total percentage of viewers possible. It's 100%. Subtract the percentage who voted it number one. 
We're supposed to fill that in here. I don't have it in front of me, but it's not 100. And your remainder equals the percentage of people who haven't seen Amadeus. <laughs> so Brett is quite adamant Very nice. that Amadeus Very is the nice right Brett. choice. Now, there was someone else on Twitter, and I apologize to this listener for not recognizing their handle, even though they hurt my feelings a lot when they said anybody who votes Amadeus is a cop. That was brilliant. I mean, you know, no offense to friends and family in law enforcement, but um, I believe that was Chris Roundhill, I think, who said that. And he pretty much nails it. No, Amadeus yeah. is a brilliant film. No, no, and yes, I'm glad that's, people that's, are recognizing you're, you're correct. No, 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 no. You're correct, officer. Can I go now? <laughs> How dare you, sir? Okay, well, looks like we're going to have some fun with that discussion as we get into our eight from 84 series. Now, other poll options, I'm sure, Michael, you would rather see instead of Amadeus when maybe Ghostbusters or no. Josh's beloved A Nightmare on Elm Street? Uh, I like that the best of the three. Oh, Michael. Yes. You know what? You can come back next week. Thank you. Where's, <laughs> but where's, I like... where's Joe? Am I, am I in charge of the board? Can I cut the mics? Can I just cut the mics? I don't know. I never got over the change in direction and tone that Amadeus took from the stage to the movie. Because the, the, the pl- on stage, it, it was basically— this is where ignorance is bliss. All right. It, on stage, it was basically this breathless, screwball comedy slash tragedy. And in the movie, it's like— That's, that's it's what like I John, It's like John Houston's The Bible for pacing. <laughs> uh, well— uh, you could also go, Michael, oh, in our poll. I can't wait to revisit it now. <laughs> Man, Stop Making Sense, the great love Jonathan it, love Demi. Love it, Got no problems there. Doc, wonderful film about the talking heads, their live show, The Terminator. This is Spinal Tap or Other, the ones that are the most in contention right now for Other are Paris, Texas, from mm-hmm. The Vendors, The Killing Fields, and Once Upon a Time in America, which is one of the eight films we will watch as part of this series. A serious blind spot for both me and Josh. God, just got to make sure you see the long cut. Okay, you the hear that, Josh? We have to have version. a discussion about versions. You're uh, always going to default to the theatrical. I, I just, oh, my God. I just, oh, please, not with this film. Michael, this is a historical project here. You start with the initial artifact. But it's not really. <laughs> it's not the Urtext. Okay. It's, it's 36 so. years later. We if can do whatever so. we want. We're no. not resigned to just watching the one they put in the theater. I'm talking about the... Apparently, we're not having a discussion. We're talking about... <laughs> <laughs> Officer Kempenar has right. rolled up again. I am the law. All right. Good the, gracious. The theatrical version of Once Upon a Time in America is is like a bad quarto from Shakespeare. It's no good. Don't get the bad quarto. Can okay. Get, see right. the damn full version. Got Michael on my side. <laughs> Thank you. Starman, that 8 from 84 review, plus our top five Jeff Bridges scenes is what we have for you on next week's show. If you have a pick... You can share that with us. You can find us on Facebook at FilmSpotting and Twitter at FilmSpotting or send us a note, feedback at FilmSpotting.net. If you send us an MP3 file or call with a voicemail, that number is 312-264-0744. You have to do any scene you mention, even if it's not from The Big Lebowski, as the dude. That is required for audio. 36th anniversary, which, what is that, the oil slick anniversary i don't know what's 36 years michael who who cares about 36 years it's the white russian anniversary okay yeah appropriate it is 36 years since 1984 but more importantly it's 15 years since the beginning of film spotting 2005 we are also recognizing that here in february on saturday night february 8th we're going to celebrate at chicago's music box theater we're going to talk we're going to watch a movie we'll talk some more We'll have a few drinks. The movie is Howard Hawks' Rio Bravo in 35mm. John Wayne, Angie Dickinson, Dean Martin, My Rifle, My Pony, Me, Josh, Michael, 
you will be there. Sam, of course, our producer and original co-host. And we're going to have fun watching Rio Bravo and spending a little bit of time talking about it. It was one of the standout films from our first ever film spotting marathon way back in 05. Unless Michael and I make a push to change it to Nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm feeling some support here, but no, no, no. Real, real Bravo cannot wait to see this on the big screen. It'll be fantastic. My first time. I've never seen it properly. You know, I've never seen it on a big screen. Yeah. Seen it yeah, in classrooms, seen it on TV, probably saw it in pan and scan, you know, mm-hmm. but it's, uh, I, I love a Hawks Western so much more than the average, I hate to say this, the average John Ford Western. That's how much I love Hawks' Westerns. Hmm. You know, I just, uh, Hawks is the best, I think. the Some best. Some fodder of- for our post-screening discussion, mm-hmm. perhaps. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Michael. Mm-hmm. And you do have the chance to buy a VIP ticket and join us for the meet and greet beforehand. Michael, you will be there for that if if we can get you out of your trailer. I've always wanted to talk to you guys, so I will buy it. <laughs> it's going to be difficult because we're no longer – you're not giving me eye contact on okay. that, I heard. So we'll just be – Adam, would you hand this note to Josh, <laughs> yeah. please? We do hope to see all of you there. More info at filmspotting.net slash events. That's filmspotting.net slash events. We're very excited to have our partners here at WBEZ on board as a media sponsor for this tour stop. And it's presented by Mubi, a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe. Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, a movie you've been dying to see, or one you've never heard of before, there is always something new to discover. At Mubi, they hand-select each and every film, so that way you don't have to spend all this time looking for something great to watch, taking a guess, and then actually, it turns out, wasn't so great. So this is more like your own personal film festival, streaming anytime, anywhere. Try Mubi free for 30 days at Mubi.com slash filmspotting. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting for a whole month of great cinema for free. And a couple quick highlights of the type of programming you will find currently over at Mubi, a Takeshi Kitano series called Destroy All Yakuza. It's dedicated to Kitano's work, including his Golden Lion winning film Fireworks and the Image Book and Touch Me Not. Mubi is presenting the exclusive online streaming premieres of two of the most acclaimed films from the recent festival circuit, Godard's Image Book, which won the first ever special Palm d'Or at Cannes, and Touch Me Not, which won the Golden Bear at Berlin Isle. So some good stuff there, again, at Mubi.com slash filmspotting for you to seek out. The sound goes through the cable to the box. A man records it on a big record in wax. But you have to talk into the mic first. In the bush! It is time for Massacre Theater, the part of the show where we perform a scene and you get a chance at winning a film spotting t-shirt. It's been a long time, Adam, since we've played Massacre Theater. You and I are probably very rusty, but that's okay because we're going to give Michael the difficult part here. Do you think my acting could get worse? Mm. Is that possible? It's always possible. (laughs) I have the easy part here. I have really the easy part. So I'm hoping that somehow I managed to pull it off. It is a three-person scene. I... Don't know how we got Michael Phillips to do this. I mean, we didn't show him usually, the script for usually one thing. There's like summer stock. You have a fee or something for this type of performance, right, Michael? Yeah, I mean, I don't want to talk money on the air. I think it's kind of unseemly. <laughs> it cheapens it. Yeah, it's, unse- <laughs> it's cheapening the art, you know. Uh, but uh, but but let's. Why don't we just dive in here and, and show what we can do? Let's Let, do it. Let's see some art. <laughs> we're not going to give you any hints, and for the people who recognize the scene, you will understand why we're not saying anything more about the scene, which starts with me. So, Josh, do you want to direct and give me the action? And action. 
I don't even want a drink. It's about time. I was getting awful tired of taking care of you. If you want to jump in, I'll take care of you. <laughs> now, what is this now? <laughs> You're going to take care of him? Come on now, tell me about it. Sheriff's got himself a girl. Oh, shut up, will ya? <laughs> we ain't going to go through that again, are we? Going to do the same thing do done? Oh, keep still. Well, why don't people tell me these things? Where are you going? Where are you going? Let him go. No fooling the sheriff's got himself a girl? I think so, but uh, he doesn't know it yet. She's got him on the run, huh? <laughs> sure has. <laughs> I can just see him laying down the law going, going, I told you to get back in there. (laughs) And then getting told off his self. And see. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. That could not be the first time you did that. First time. First time I've been around. Yeah. Man, your your Thank you. impression of my character was better than my performance. <laughs> it was way better. <laughs> Let me just it was say, way I, I have a to, rare uh, dual performance from Michael Phillips. Thank you. Thank you. I, I always have to thank my college friend, Tom Johnson, who used to do this particular actor a great impression. He would just go up to people and say, <laughs> was you ever stung by a dead bee? He'd ask like, you know, people he never met that uh-huh. question. That was his icebreaker at parties. I'm sure that went over really well. Uh, well, I'll check in with him on that. But uh, anyway, so it's really that. It paid off. It finally paid off. Tom Johnson, thank you. If you we know what we film, all thank you, Tom. Yeah, we really do. If you know what film we just massacred, Michael gave a stunning performance. We massacred it. You can email the movie's title along with your name and location to feedback at filmspotting.net. The deadline is Monday, February 10th. The winner will be selected randomly from all the correct entries and announced in a couple of weeks. Wanted to just take a moment to thank some of our new film spotting donors this week, Sam Veltri in Houston, PA, and new Silver Club donors, Amanda Hoffman in Glen Iris, Victoria, Australia, and Julie Mayer, who writes to us from Seattle. I've been binging on the podcast over the last few weeks, so a donation is well overdue. Hope Seattle is on the itinerary for the 15-year anniversary tour. I already have a backlog of movie opinions to burden someone with, and my wife has lost all patience with me. Love the interplay, humor, and varied topics in the podcast. And looking forward to the 1984 retrospective. Well, thank you for that, Julie. We really appreciate the kind words and the donation. And we have one more, David Gratton in San Francisco, a gold-level donor. Thank you to everyone who sent us some of their hard-earned cash this week. And to our regular monthly donors, you really do keep us doing what we're doing. What's the matter? What? No, 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 no. What, what do you mean you can't? There's an audience out there waiting to hear you sing. My mouth's dry and it could fall apart. Listen to me. I can't. You'll be fine. Now, on you go. We get back into our Oscar preview special with that clip from the Judy Garland biopic, Judy, Best Actress nominee Renee Zellweger, and that scene with... Someone who maybe should have been a Best Actress nominee this year. Certainly, I loved her performance in Wild Rose, Jesse Buckley. Much smaller role in Judy. The nominees, in addition to Renee Zellweger, are Cynthia Erivo as Harriet Tubman in Harriet, Scarlett Johansson playing Nicole in Marriage Story, Saoirse Ronan as Joe March in Little Women, and Charlize Theron as Megan Kelly in Bombshell. Michael, who do you think? will win. Mm, I, I think it's still going to be, this has been kind of a front runner for a while, Renee Zellweger for Judy. Uh, I, I would, you know, should win. I had Saoirse Ronan at least a couple weeks ago. I'd be frankly just as pleased with 
especially Scarlett Johansson for Marriage mm-hmm. Story. I think Erevo is a huge, huge talent, and I think it's a really good performance and a pretty good movie. And uh, um, but but that's I, I think Zellweger still got the sentimental. I, I don't want to just put it to sentiment, but I no, think, I think she's got. I think it, it hits every sweet spot with large swaths of the 8,000-strong Academy members. Yeah, absolutely. So. And and I would have, before seeing Judy, I would have predicted that she would win for those reasons. I mean, it's it's showbiz again, right? We're, we're right back to kind of looking in a mirror. Um, but as also, it's the fact that it's sort of a comeback for Zellweger. I mean, I know she's done some work, but I have not seen her in anything since Miss Potter, which I think was 2006. And I know she's been in films between then and now, but I just haven't seen them. So she hasn't been quite the presence on screen for a lot of people um, in recent years. And so this can kind of qualify as a comeback. So I think she probably will win. As far as should win for me, yeah, it's Scarlett Johansson in Mm -hmm. Marriage Story, just giving, I, I don't know if it's her best performance of her career, you might say under the skin, but think about how different those performances are. This is maybe her best um, real world performance, like a person, as I've described it, you would meet on the street mm-hmm. or you might know in your life. And to see her doing that so well was was kind of astonishing. And so I think that uh, it should probably go to Scarlett Johansson. Yeah, I'm with you guys that I think it's going to be Zellweger. I do wish it wasn't for a biopic, even a halfway decent one like Judy. I wish it wasn't for the performance that does feel like the most acting. But I do think she captured Garland's ability to tap into a deep reservoir of emotion at any time. And there's a real fragility to it. And yet there's that ebullience of those performance scenes. Yeah, yeah. I I should say, like, I I was really impressed by that performance as much as I may have resisted the film and the biopic genre and all of that. I mean, the physicality that she does bring to it. You're right, Adam. It's very showy. Um, But it's all about it. To me, it was almost the, the flip side of not the flip side, but the woman version of what Adam Sandler was doing in the male category in Uncut Gems. There was that much thrumming tension coming out of her as Judy Garland. Mm. Uh, she was, I thought she was really good. Yeah, I would love to see Scarlett Johansson win, though, for Marriage Story. I think she has the tougher role slightly, actually, than Adam Driver as Charlie, at least in terms of audience identification, because she is the aggressor when it comes to the actual divorce proceeding. She's the one who escalates things, but I think Johansson embraces all of the kind of contradictions and complexities of Nicole. And I rewatched a scene today that I loved the first time I saw Marriage Story, which is kind of an emotional scene. It's where she breaks down and cries for the first time we see her early in the film. But it's that moment where they've come home from her last performance with this theater company, and they've had that bit of tension at the after party and then that icy ride home on the subway. And at home, they're kind of falling into their usual routines a little bit, and she knows that her director husband wants to give her a note, even though it would be the most absurd and insufferable thing he could do because she's never going to play the role again. And he points that out. And yet she knows that that's what he wants to do. And she says, no, come on, give it to me. And he does says, thanks for indulging me. And we see her then just walk out of the room. And the moment she exits that room, we get some waterworks from her where you just recognize that that dynamic, what she's recognizing in that moment, that that dynamic is what makes them Charlie yeah, and Nicole. It, it, absolutely. And it, make, those, and, it, and it makes the the divorce seem like the probable correct course. Yeah, it does. <laughs> Certainly there's, there's that element too, but those indulgences of your spouse and those compromises are what marriage is. And that's the last one that 
is ever going to happen between them like mm. that. Mm-hmm. It is all over there. And this is my favorite Scarlett Johansson performance, and she's given many good ones. So I would really love to see her win. What about an omission that bothered you a lot? Oh, my Michael? God. It's the best. I mean, it's my favorite performance, single performance last year on screen was Lupita Nyong'o in Us. I mean, just yeah. just just the, the work she did to delineate those two characters and the just the ferocity and precision of of all the scenes that require big big acting bigger than I'm talking Zellweger and Judy big you know and 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 that's but it's there the technique is so good she is so great I I just it kills me that she didn't get nominated and I I don't know if it's just that the film is difficult for some people to kind of track and like what's actually going on toward the end. Mm-hmm. I don't know if it, that it came out in March. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I th- you're right. This is the glaring omission. This is the forehead slapping one. Um, but there are reasons you can see and you've given some of them why this might have happened. It did come out early. It is horror, you know, a genre that the Academy resists. But my goodness, not only the performance itself, um, talk about physicality in terms of, of what Zellweger is doing in Judy, but the element that – the fact that physicality comes into play in this performance here. But how about the fact that Nyong'o is already an Oscar winner? They love you if you've won once already. At least you get a courtesy nomination. I mean I'm not saying that's how it should work, yeah. but it's how it usually does work. So why didn't it work here? The performance was heralded across the board. Uh, I don't think – there was a critics group that didn't have it in their nominations, at least. It was right there for the Academy. Yeah, I'm with both of you guys on that front as well. Lupita Nyong'o is my stupid omission. And it's unfortunate that she got overlooked here because, Michael, you talked about that dual role and it being big. I rewatched that scene today where we're introduced to the tethered figure. We finally meet the quote-unquote monster. Right, we meet the right. doppelganger. And you're right that it's big in terms of the emotion of it. You used the word earlier, the ferocity of it. You get that sense from both performances within that single scene. And yet there's such a stillness and quiet to it. She is tapping into all of this emotion without being showy as an actress at all. In that scene, if you watch neither character that Nyong'o is playing ever blinks, those eyes wide open, listening intently, listening as a performer is so key to what Nyong'o does, certainly in this role. And the way she's listening, it's with curiosity. And it's actually oddly because she's just suffering through a home invasion and is legitimately terrified. And her family is, too. But there's this odd sort of compassion that almost seems to come through where she she's genuinely wanting to hear the story. That's right. That's why that scene's so great, because it's it's not played for fright That's w- it. once it's established. And it, I'll tell you, it, it, we want to hear that story. And it is some of the most riveting exposition. Yes. With, uh, in, in just like, OK, give me some plot information so I can hang on to the premise here is kind of what the subconscious audience needs are and they get everything they need and it's the it, I've just never seen it more deftly and kind of like strikingly mm-hmm. delivered you know I I, I wish you know uh, whatever I, I wish the last 20 minutes or so were as astutely handled it, it, it's just that by then I think he's peels lost control of whatever mythologies he's trying to deal with uh, and and create uh, fresh and new. I mean, this is a look. This is the one movie that, that wasn't based on anything that mm-hmm. didn't come from anywhere except for Peel's prodigious imagination. And that performance that she gives is is it's a it's a director's dream. Yeah, yeah. And in terms of who 
we would kick out Michael, I think, for this category. It's a pretty easy one. The one I would like to have seen omitted is, unfortunately, because I really like her as an actress, is Charlize Theron for playing Megan Kelly in the movie Bombshell. This is a movie that unfortunately feels like a really shabby costume party in every scene. It feels like one where everybody is definitely pretending to be a real person. And it's just chock full of these kind of faces popping up and voices popping up. And you're wondering, oh, okay, oh, he's he's Geraldo and he's Rudy Giuliani. And it's so distracting. And even, unfortunately, Theron's performance as Megan Kelly, where she gets the machine-like physicality of Megan Kelly. She gets the look right. She gets the expressions right. And yet it never feels like anything more than an imitation. I agree. And that's that's a a high wire act that every performer who's playing a real person has to walk and has to figure out. Zellweger figured it out. Theron didn't hear as Megan Kelly, but I also honestly put a lot of the blame for that on the writing and the direction. I think maybe if she had better material, we would see a better performance from Theron. At least I want to believe that. But the performance we get in Bombshell not worthy of an Oscar. Nomination. I agree. There's a key moment that uh, among many that I think you know, it's not a terrible film, and I've cer- mm-hmm. I've certainly seen worse. You know, uh, stabs at at kind of sardonically handled recent history, whether it's on the subject or, or others. But there's that moment where she says, "Wait a minute, wait, am I turning into the story?" And and you're supposed to believe yeah. that Megyn Kelly didn't have <laughs> at least some the wherewithal positive the feelings about yeah. that. Yeah, and I just think I think it's. Uh, I think it it gives that character such a pass that uh, that you know it makes me question I guess my ability to kind of leave politics out of watching a, a very deeply political movie mm-hmm. or in and to what degree or in what ways that's actually useful as a viewer as a critic to do that do you really leave politics off the table or or a political spin or interpretation on a story like this I'm not sure but somehow it it did sort of affect and limit. Um, Charlize Theron's performance as Megyn Kelly. It just seems like, as you say, Adam, you know, kind of a half flattering, unduly flattering, mm-hmm. and a half kind of, you know, sly caricature. And it's just yep. somehow that mixture doesn't work. I just want to jump back quickly to the Lupita Nyong'o um, omission because I remember seeing circulating on Twitter, I forget who first put it out there, but the image of the Hollywood Reporter Actress Roundtable cover. And this was in November. So this was before any nominations came out. Mm -hmm. They were gathering the actresses who were getting the most buzz and they thought were likely nominees. You had six women on there. Scarlett Johansson, Lupita Nyong'o, Laura Dern, Aquafina, Jennifer Lopez, and Renee Zellweger. Now, in your mind, you can probably already see you have three women of color there. Guess which three were nominated by the Academy and guess which three were not. I mean, I know the answer. It's it's that, you know, we're sitting here speculating. I wonder why Lupita Nyong'o, you know, it's kind of curious. It's kind of surprising. I mean, sometimes (laughs) you have the evidence right there. That brings us to best actor. Josh, the nominees are. All right. Antonio Banderas for Pain and Glory. Leonardo DiCaprio for Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Adam Driver for Marriage Story. Joaquin Phoenix for Joker. And we got a pope. We've got ourselves a pope, Jonathan Price, in The Two Popes. <laughs> Michael, will one of the popes, in this case, Jonathan Price, win the Oscar? No. 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 I like that film fine. You know, I do like yeah. it. And I like the performances, but no, no. I think I think the should win, 
The, for me, the should win is, is Antonio Banderas, or it was two weeks ago, and I'm not. It's a real close call with Adam Driver too, because I just yeah. my regard for marriage stories just couldn't be higher. But uh, I would say, you know, the will win is easy. Joaquin Phoenix and Joker should win for me. You know, tie between Banderas and Adam Driver, I guess. Mm. But uh, I wrote I wrote Banderas, so that's what I'm doing. What about you? Okay, all right. I think I think Joaquin Phoenix will win. I'm going to go back to the track record thing. He has four nominations and no wins. So you know, t- in a sense, if you're looking at this like an Academy voter, you could say he's due. For the record, I was thinking earlier. I had said there might be a Joker category that did make my top five in critics voting groups. And actually, I I didn't have it that high. Joaquin Phoenix was not even in my top five. I think he was in my top 10 for male lead performances of the year. As far as who should win, I think I'm torn with you, Michael, between Adam Driver and Antonio Banderas. Um, I'm leaning toward Driver because the performance, obviously, but also because I went with Johansson as who I thought should win in the actress category. And part of me thinks that, you know, he and Johansson, they either have to both win or both lose. They're, they're just so... So you're saying it's like Lawrence Olivier, they're... Michael Caine, and Sleuth. That was always That's the talk a, back then. Exactly I what I was thinking. No. <laughs> but it, it is, you know, those are two performances that um, they do have wonderful moments independently. But when you think about, and we've talked about, um, the, the really impressive sequences in Marriage Story, it's when they're acting off each other. So obviously I do think Joaquin Phoenix is going to win and it bums me out because you know I'm Joaquin Phoenix's biggest fan. I would love to be sitting here saying, yes, finally he's going to get his due and he's going to get his due and it's going to be for a performance that is the only one of the nominees I didn't like. I love the other four. I found Phoenix in particular as cloying and overbearing as the movie itself and I think that the the sheer toil of the performance how hard Phoenix is clearly working is what's going to get him the Oscar. That does, as I said, bum me out. But overall, I joked during one of our previews last year, he's the greatest actor alive. Yes, I'll even put him ahead of Daniel Day-Lewis. So you know what? what? He, has, this is what he hasn't lost that, uh, that stature. Come close. On. He's really close. In terms of who should win, I am going to say it has to be Adam Driver. I think they are my couple who should be married forever in Oscar (laughs) lore. It's not going to work out that way, but I do love Driver's performance. I think those are the two best lead performances of the year. And how about Sam, our producer, in the Film Spotting newsletter this week, which you can subscribe to at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Shocking everyone. The guy who I think is the only person who loves Marriage Story even more than you, Michael. And he goes and says that if Marriage Story is first and foremost an achievement of writing and directing with some brilliant acting, Mm -hmm. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, a film I didn't love, Sam notes, is first and foremost an acting achievement with some great production design. Credit to Tarantino for creating Rick Dalton, but the specificity of DiCaprio's work, his bitterly funny self-loathing, charisma, and sense of entitlement masking deep anxiety, his barely concealed stutter, is what makes him so memorable. So Sam actually going with just edging out Adam Driver, Leonardo DiCaprio in this category. And I love the performances, Rick Dalton, too, but for me... It is driver in Marriage Story, and I might take issue a little bit with Sam claiming that it's first and foremost an achievement of writing and directing with that brilliant acting. I think that without the layers and the life that Driver and Johansson breathe into those characters, Charlie and Nicole, Marriage Story could have been a very different movie and could have been a really brutal slog 
And it's not. No, no, it's not. And of course, it's a tribute to, yes, Baumbach's writing and to the directing and the cinematography and the editing. I do think the movie really is a marvel in a lot of ways, but I think the acting is just as deserving of recognition for what makes that movie great. And I hope Driver wins, even as I don't think he's probably going to, unfortunately. So what about any big mistakes? I mean, honestly, the one I would would have been happy to pop in there was Adam... Sandler for Uncut Gems, a film yeah, I seems liked. Seems like an obvious one for uh, them to pick. A film I liked, didn't love, but uh, a performance that reminds you, it's mm-hmm. been said a million times, reminds you that there is a, a real actor and a really good actor underneath everything else working against Adam Sandler as a performer. Why do you think Oscar voters didn't go that route? I mean, it, it seems like it's set there for them, or is it the fact that Uncut Gems is a movie they just didn't watch? It's a, it's a it's a uncomfortable experience yeah. for a lot of viewers. It's it, it there's nothing confrontational in Jonathan Price in the Two Popes. I mean, that's a very reassuringly crafty and and pleasurable performance. Yeah, very you know? good. Uh, but. You know, I, I've got some questions about the Safdie Brothers movie this time, and I'm not yet entirely sure why I like it a little less than everything else they've done. But um, but Sandler's wonderful in it, and and I think uh, it would have, it would have been a good nomination. Once again. Kevin in Clinton, Tennessee, writes, Adam Sandler got hosed. Pre-Golden Globes, I was ready to make a three-way parlay. Sandler Globes, Sandler SAG, Sandler Oscar, alas, nada. Are awards voters, especially the acting branches, punishing the Sandman for his constant lack of seriousness? My buzz has been killed by his omission from the Oscar ballot, and it seems to be a reflection of his peers not taking him seriously. He hasn't helped himself there, really. Despite his obvious skill and unrelenting energy in tackling such a character as Howie Ratner, it is a performance I would put up there with the best of the year, stopping short only of the other Adam, Adam Driver, the only one left I'm rooting for in the best actor category. So I think Kevin and you guys are right in mentioning Sandler and that notion of him maybe not being taken seriously by his peers or somehow them being put off by maybe his campaigning for this and not earning it properly. That was suggested by hmm. one Oscar voter, that Didn't, New York Post article that came aware. out. Just about everyone yeah. campaigns, I feel right. like. But. Yeah, but it was mostly the fact that he somehow, yeah, didn't take it seriously hmm. enough and okay. had, hadn't properly earned it with all the other nonsense he has apparently made. But, yeah, I think that performance as Howie Ratner does deserve to be a nominee. Yes, obviously, I would put it ahead of Joaquin Phoenix. That character we talked about a little bit on our roundtable, how he is so self-destructive and outright destructive. And even if I don't quite align with the Safdie brothers in viewing him as redeemable and romantic, I understand why they do. And that performance is a huge reason why there there is an audacity and a brazenness to Howie that I think has to be grounded or he becomes purely a comic figure and not potentially the tragic one that he becomes. So that's easy. We're all agreed on Sandler. But I think this is a really difficult category to say, who are we going to take out? Well, not for not you, for me. Adam. I mean, I, I, I would have – I didn't have Joaquin Phoenix as, um, you know, in my top five performances. But I did have him in my top ten. I mean, maybe it helps if you see this. This is a dance performance that he's given. So, yes, gestures big are going to be a part of it. That's what I liked about it. Um, I also had Price's Pope in my top ten performances mm-hmm. of the year. So – I didn't have DiCaprio as uh, I'm not with Sam on this. I loved that performance. I think it's great, but it just I had a lot ahead of it that I thought were even better in a great year. So DiCaprio might be the one I would take you out. Did, Adam, yeah. you're taking well, out Phoenix. You're, I would, I would, yeah, it's, Michael, it's, you know, there's not a, a second of Joker that doesn't utterly rely on Joaquin Phoenix to 
to save it or bail it out or sell it or something. And yet if the results are loathsome to me, <laughs> then then I think I would probably mm-hmm. say, look, Joaquin Phoenix has done brilliant work, uh, not you know, not every time, but nobody nobody does every time. I I, I think this is just simply a, a bunch of surface activity in search of a better interpretation as written. You know, it it just feels like a twenty minute improv exercise yoinked out to two plus hours, and mm. I don't know, I, not for me. I just you know, I got nothing but uh, trouble with with Todd Phillips as a filmmaker and as a thinker. And I think he's. I don't even think he's any good. I don't think he's any good with actors. Don't mind so. me. I'm just giving a standing well, ovation. Well, <laughs> let, let's not talk about the movie at all, though. I mean, the, the movie itself. I, I think. I think there's been a conflation with Phillips and the movie in ways that we're not comfortable doing with a lot of other films. Um, well, and so no, it feels no, no, like no, there's because that movie no, I do, no. there is part of Phillips in that movie obviously, yes, for sure. Uh, but well, part of what it makes it disturbing and um, interesting to me are the ways it's also working against itself and becoming its own unruly thing that matches, you know, I don't think it's a movie where you're going to sit down and say I want to know what Todd Phillips is thinking about the world. Um, and I don't think that's what that movie is giving but I don't you. but I don't know what what is in that film except for just sustaining, attempting to sustain a, a monotonous, unrevealing mood of dread and anguish mm-hmm. that just yeah. absolutely lets that character off the hook in a way. And it utterly un, unmystifies the character uh, by, yeah, see, expl- by explaining every every rationale in the end in the dumbest way. But thinking and, yeah. that it's trying to make a hero of that character is the fight club argument that was so erroneous then that I, that I think – um, is just a simplistic way of looking at Joker and, and whether or not, mm. you know, Phillips does or talks about it. I, I think part of my reservation is that I don't care how he I know, talks but about so it. So many reviews and conversations always go back to his interviews. And it's sort it's don't sort care of about this that. thing. Don't care about either that. do I. I, had I to wish look that up could what stay other out of movies it. he has directed because I didn't watch Joker knowing that I had seen any of them or thinking of him at all as yeah. a director. Well, Sorry, I was, you know, I was the hangover the, is I know, not, seen not it, really, I mean, you something, know, for me, something's up with it. I mean, I yeah. detested Due Date. And I don't, you know, I didn't go into Due Date, the Robert Downey Jr. Zach Galifianakis comedy, you know, expecting anything other than those guys in a movie like that. And I just I, the, I is that a, is that a Phillips Todd Phillips? It movie? is. Okay. It's, it's, a, it's a Phillips <laughs> yeah. joint. That's I didn't why I bring even it know up. that. And I mean, the only film I his I got through relatively painlessly ever was Old School. And I mean, I, I, it's not a movie I really care to even I, think I about. Do like I do like Old School. So yeah, me too. Something, me something too. broke so about me. I was the we Michael did have Jackson our Joker argument. I was the Michael Jackson <laughs> gift, just like. Munching on popcorn while Michael was going there—that was really good. Right, I, enjoyed, I enjoyed watching. I thought you the guys. argument would be with you, Adam, but no, no, no. I mean, always somebody it, willing to he talk said what about I Joker said during our review, but better. Just there, also, he's so. got my name. You know, yeah, the, 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 the let's get to the core. It's very it. personal. He's got my isn't name. It? Yeah, he's my very brother. Personal. He's actually okay. my brother by by a previous. Well, let's get to our penultimate category. And speaking of interpretation, Michael, mm. I suppose that's what these. People do these nominees, the nominees for Best Director. Best Director, Bong Joon-ho, Parasite, Sam Mendes, 1917, Todd Phillips. Oh, no, here we go. uh, Joker, (laughs) Martin Scorsese, The Irishman, Quentin Tarantino, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and that's the five. Yeah. That's the five. 
What do you think, Adam? Well, I will tell you that this is the easiest one, and we have now spent almost a month talking about these films, including giving more time on this show. I think that Bong Joon-ho, I'm hoping he will win. I don't know that that's a lock by any stretch. I'm hoping he will win for Parasite, and I think he should win as it's the best film of the year. So you're putting your bet there. I'm going to say that I think he's actually going to win. Wow. This is the category. Hmm. I love yes, the optimism. obviously, international film is the is the obvious pick. But I think that this is the one best director where they will reward this surprising hit. Well, quality. <laughs> they yeah, will reward the surprising, quality. really good <laughs> yeah. masterpiece. What about you? What, what about you? Well, I mean, we... <laughs> Yes, that's my wish. I mean, <laughs> but that's not what this. It's who's going to win, and it's going to be Mendes. I mean, it's uh, it's I fear again, you're right. it's a foreign language film, and I I keep harping on that. But I would just like to see an enlightened academy that's willing to recognize that this is you know. An, uh, also, we've talked many times about the big acting be awarded, being awarded, the most written thing mm-hmm. being awarded. And that's What's, that movie. What that's feels this movie. like the yeah. most yeah. directed than 1917. Even though, so ironically, think, it might not well, be. Well, right. I mean, th- that's part of the argument <laughs> is. is like, uh, what about all the people, the production designers and everyone else who are so crucial to making that feel like a continuous single take? But you just say that and you think of what an audacious move by the director, right? I think my so, only counter to what you just said, and again, I obviously don't have any real line on whether or not Parasite's going to win. But I think about the times in the past where – the Academy did diverge from the best winner of the best, best picture That's winning true. best director. Yeah. And I feel like that could happen. Yeah. Here. And we're going to get right. to it in a second. I think 1917 is probably going to win. I think this is where they're going to give the due recognition to Bong Joon-ho. And, and that's – I like that. That's good historical evidence um, and, and it's probably the strongest reasoning to give for why that might happen. I just don't think it it will. Um, but as I've said, Bong Joon-ho should, should win it. It's not only the most directed in, in a lot of ways, Parasite, but also the best directed. Yeah. You know, that it, it manages to do both things. Yeah, I agree. Well, stupid omission. You know mine, Greta Gerwig, Little Women. Well-covered territory. She obviously was one of the best directors of the year, making one of the best films of the year, in my opinion. And – Yes, you could kick out a couple directors here for me, 1917, Sam Mendes, but Todd Phillips and Joker. Yeah, I'd have to go for a twofer on this. I'd, I'd, I'd say the stupid omissions are Greta Gerwig and Noah Baumbach. And with the fact that they're a couple in real life, nothing, nothing to do with it. They just happen to make two of the best films yes. of the year. And yeah, I'd be thrilled to kick off Mendes and Todd Phillips for, <laughs> you know, to make room. And you're, and you're a strange brother. Yes. Um, I'm going to have to once more go to bat for us and say that Jordan Peele was right there for the Academy as well. And I'd probably take out Mendes also. Okay. Best picture. Nine nominees, Ford versus Ferrari, The Irishman, Jojo Rabbit, Joker, Little Women, Marriage Story, 1917, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, and Parasite. If you look at the Vegas odds right now, 1917 is the film that has not a not a dominant odds advantage, but it's the movie that is expected to win Best Picture. Is anyone going to argue with that? Mm, I, I... I want to so badly, and and I know I'm, I would be arguing against everything I've said on this show so far about the Academy's tendencies, but I do wonder, I do wonder if the preferential ballot system they have, which as far as I understand it, it basically ranks, it's a ranked voting system. So if there are enough second or third place votes for something like yep. Parasite, yep. it could bump it ahead if there's no dominant first place choice. So as you were just describing with those odds, Adam, um, I, I thought 
1917 had a stronger grip on the lead. But if it's not that strong and a lot of, you know, it, and so those votes are split in other areas, but enough people vote Parasite second. This is the time in the awards cycle, in the Oscar cycle, where, where people start thinking about this. How, you know, what about everybody's consensus, strong second choice? And suddenly, you mm-hmm. know, you, that you, you'd love to know what the results were where you could point to, say, I don't know, Spotlight or something else, you know, which yeah. is well, a film I really loved. But, you know, a film that, OK, was this was this a lot of people's first choice or was it everybody's second choice? I'm going to say it. I'm going to say Parasite's going to win. Really? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. OK. I like it. I like your optimism, pal. And well, I have. I've, I've talked against its chances in every other category, um, but but yeah, maybe this is the place it'll happen. And is it the highest ranked film for you as far as on your top ten of the year that did get a nomination? Yeah, I had it third of the year behind Portrait of Lady on Fire and Us, so it's it's the one I think should win so as well. It's the movie we all think should win. Yep. Josh is going to be so bold to declare it as the movie that will win, which Michael and I will be rooting for, and we hope we are wrong. Is there a stupid omission in this case? Obviously, there are movies that we all maybe like better than some of these nominees. Is there one you can't believe didn't get nominated? Well, I would have nominated The Farewell for sure. I mean, if you're talking, there's a lot of films I liked better than some of these on here. But but The Farewell, I, I just think I don't, I'm not quite sure why uh, a film that well made in almost every respect by a newish director, not not brand new, but, you know, mm-hmm. and writer. I, I don't know. She's just a, she's as, as much of a talent as Greta Gerwig and a lot of other people you can name. But, yeah, that's that's my pick. Yeah, I think, you know, us, as I've said, really obvious for the Academy to go with. But what about something like Knives Out, yeah, which they honored in the original screenplay category? Mm-hmm. I mean, that seems like an easy choice. Michael, you've talked, you mentioned before about how box office does play a role in this. And that's very true. If you look at the record, you know, they're not going to award a film that bombed, no matter how many critical accolades it got. Very, the movie, very, very The seldom, movie has seldom. to have been respectable at the box office and Knives Out was a hit. So that seems strange to me that it got overlooked here. And I think it'd be easy to slide that in for, you know, say something like, I I see why they went for 1917, but Ford versus Ferrari, maybe the, which I liked fine, but mm-hmm. is also maybe the most traditionalist option <laughs> among all these nominees, 1917 and Ford versus Ferrari. So um, swap both of those out for us and Knives Out, I'd be a lot happier. Yeah. Knives Out was the one I thought of immediately where I would have it in ahead of at least ahead of four of the nominees here. I can't complain too much because my top five films of the year all did get a nomination for Best Picture, but I'd kick out four movies and put Knives Out ahead of them. And yeah, you've talked about it. Portrait of a Lady on Fire, not a film that I expected to get no. recognition. It wasn't even France's submission officially for Best International <laughs> Les Miserables, yeah. Les yeah. But I think for me, definitely the highest ranked film on my list, the movie I most adore that didn't get a single Oscar nomination. But let's go back real quick to 1917, as it is the movie that may win Best Picture. We think for the most part here, it's going to win Best Picture. And we haven't really had a chance to talk about it At the time of recording our top 10 of the year roundtable, it was the only big movie I still hadn't seen. Mm -hmm. I've caught up Mm -hmm. with it, obviously, in the past few weeks. And you guys can explain kind of your positions on the film. Michael, you wrote a very well-articulated takedown of it, I suppose I could say, in the Chicago Tribune. And you both did make comparisons to video games that you can articulate that I think is fair in terms of the structure of the movie and kind of the style of it, even down to the the breaks we get with 
famous English actors popping up on screen every once in a while <laughs> yeah. to reset the whole movie for a couple minutes. But for me, what I was thinking about the entire time I watched 1917 wasn't a first-person perspective video game, but it was like going through a haunted house. The haunted houses you used to go through when you were a kid, mm -hmm. maybe in junior high or high school, where – it's that same kind of perspective. You're usually kind of walking through a tunnel. Obviously, the haunted house is usually darker than 1917, but you're usually walking through a tunnel-like space. You're following whoever is directly in front of you at all times, and you're just bracing yourself for whatever scary thing is going to jump out at yeah, you next. That's a good, that's and a good in 1917, it's an airplane crashing. It's a rat scurrying by. Oh, don't put your hand down on the ground. You just touched a severed hand. Congratulations. And let's make it really gruesome. Let's throw in you're going to fall down. You're going to you're going to jump into a pile of dead horses with flies swirling around them. And oh, now you're in a lake. You're going to get right to the shore. You got to swim through a bunch of bodies before you get there. It always felt to me like an exercise in immersion and never actually was an immersive experience or the visceral experience. I know lots of people are saying they had with the movie. I was always detached from this film because of the technique. Even, I, I even right That's at, uh, very well put. So yeah. both of you, even right at the beginning. So it wasn't something that kind of wore on you. It was more, no. you were never in. It was on. early on. Because for me, how about mm. you, Michael? Yeah, same. Pr pretty early on. Because yeah. I did feel, I, what I think is unique and interesting about this film and, and the technique has to do with this is what it does spatially and why it was maybe perfectly suited for trench warfare is you know, you got this in Kubrick's Paths of Glory, obviously, when you're going down with the, the tracking shot down the trenches and you got how you were claustrophobic in them. But here we also had the element of rising up to see the point of view of the field of no man's land. And I, I did get a sense of constriction um, that I hadn't in many other films before, other war films, what it might have been to be in that particular time and place. Never cut away to like an aerial view to kind of give us the lay of the land. And I thought that was effective. It wasn't really until they got out of no man's land, out of those trenches and the bombed out pits that they were falling in, and the space opened up and got flattened out. And then, Adam, they seem to bring in the things you're talking about. Mm -hmm. It was like, well, now what is our – there are two factors. Now what is going to be the next thing to pop out at yeah. us, right? There was that. But also what is the next logistical challenge we that's have it, to overcome? And that's – yeah, that's where video game, the sensibility came to me. It started to feel less like I was in this actual place than that we were being – it was a series of tasks and a series of surprises. Yeah. And then I began to feel as you guys did. So I was maybe a little more favorable to the film, but I, I don't know that the technique – it's interesting, right, that Kubrick didn't use it all film long, right? No, he he no, understood no. it was useful in some spots and then you needed a different approach for different scenes. Yeah, I just think it makes war and surviving the horrors of war seem like an exciting thing to contemplate instead of uh, – instead of something more truthful and meaningful. I just think a, a better film using some of these same techniques would simply have been a more difficult experience for an average audience and an infinitely better picture. I, I just, you know, I, I just, I don't want to, I just felt like, you know, gaming my way through it and just trying to get to the next level. And especially when you get to the scenes later in the picture, as you mentioned, Adam, where, 
you know, we have to kind of run, 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 run from sniper fire and then take a ridiculous leap into the air, into the raging river. And that is, you're trying to tell me that isn't inspired by the act of watching somebody else with a joystick, you know, with with the Xbox gaming. It's not really like first person shooter games. It's just like watching the director Play, yes, yes, first, you're, exactly, Michael. It's not that you're playing it; it's you're watching someone else play it. And I think, and essentially, it's like you feel like you're watching Mendes pick up the joystick. And, yeah, and yeah. yeah, that that sensibility does take over. I the wish film. I, I just, I just think it plays the the real uh, endurance and horrors and costs and casualties and all the rest of it of of of, of real life conflict very falsely. And mm-hmm. I, I don't. I don't know. I just, you know, I got a lot of military in my family, and I and I haven't talked to anybody about it yet. But I, I I'm, I'm, I, I got a hunch that you know, you know, four out of five would just call BS on this one, just for not just because it wasn't quote realistic, but just because it's kind of, it's just it's fun, you know, in a way. And I know that it's not fun for a lot of people. Right. It, it's grueling and and you know. Um, repellent deliberately uh, and maybe in some at times honestly, but I, yeah, not for me. The technique makes it thrilling in a way that's yeah, thrilling, fun. And I mean, it's, it's Truffaut's famous quote, right? Like the, all all war movies are inherently pro-war because yeah. they're trying to valorize the conflict or whatever the quote was. Uh, and by doing that, you you cinema can't help but make it cinematically <laughs> exciting. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that's true, but but I think in this case, it's very true. Those are our Oscar picks. We'll find out if we're right, at least in terms of the predictions, which is, of course, the part we care about the least on Sunday, February 9th, when you can watch those Academy Awards on ABC. And that's our show. In the show archives, if you want to head over to filmspotting.net, you can find reviews, interviews, and top fives going back 15 years, an anniversary. We are celebrating live soon here in Chicago. Yep, goes back to 2005. If you want to order Film Spotting t-shirts or other Film Spotting merch, visit filmspotting.net slash shop. And if you want to subscribe to the weekly Film Spotting newsletter, you can do that at filmspotting.net slash newsletter. Adam and I are on Twitter and Facebook. Adam's at Filmspotting. I'm at Larson on Film. Track us down there and we can talk. You can follow the great Michael Phillips as well at Phillips Tribune on Twitter. Out in wide release this weekend. Michael, have you seen either of these films? Gretel and Hansel. No. The horror retelling of the fairy tale from the director of The Black Coat's Daughter. There's also the rhythm section. Saw it. Okay. Yeah, saw it. Recommended? It's in color. (laughs) Blake Lively takes on the identity of an assassin in an effort to find out the mystery of her family's death in color. In color. Is that an accurate description? All I was hoping for. Okay. At filmspotting.net, you can vote in the current film spotting poll. We're asking you, what is the best film of 1984? Please give more love to Amadeus and Bug, <laughs> Josh, and Michael. Next oh, week, it I, I is. Think we both know it's going to win. I mean, it is the first entry in our 8 from 84 series. We're going to talk about John Carpenter's Starman, and it should be a pretty fun top five. I know we both have one big Bridges blind spot to take care of, and it's the same movie, The Fabulous Baker Boys. Oh, can't wait. I've. Long regretted not seeing that film with his brother Bo and Michelle Pfeiffer. And this top five, our top five Jeff Bridges scenes, will force me to finally rectify that. So look forward to our top five Jeff Bridges scenes in Starman next week. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Halgren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Our production assistant is Kat Sullivan. 
Thanks also to Candace Griffiths and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board, and special thanks to everyone at WBEZ Chicago. More information is available at wbez.org. Thank you, Michael Phillips, even though you had to pile on about Joker. It was good to have you on the show. Thank you. Uh, good to see, and I'm really looking forward to February 8th at the Music Box for Rio, for Rio Bravo. We'll see you there. Michael, anything you want to plug? Where can our listeners find more of your work? They can go to chicagotribune.com slash movies and find me. And, 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 you know, the Twitter's the nicest, easiest, cleanest way to get to the copy itself. Yeah. They don't have to deal with the Tribune website. I'm not saying it's difficult. <laughs> yeah. I've, it's but a, I've heard from some people. It's your Twitter feed. It's kind of a secret backdoor to it your is. reviews. It it's is. the one I yeah. use. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. A serious blind spot for both myself and Josh. We got to see the right version. I mean, do what not. That? I'm sorry. Hold on. Just a moment. Hello. I didn't, I'm not talking to you, Siri. 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 What's your favorite I said film? Serious. Jeez. What's your favorite okay. film from '84, Siri? <laughs> I mean, you were so good, it stunned me, and I didn't know it was my line. He <laughs> yeah, froze up. I there. froze up. <laughs> film spotting is listener supported. Join the Film Spotting family at filmspottingfamily.com and get access to ad-free episodes, monthly bonus shows, our weekly newsletter, and for the first time, all in one place, the entire Film Spotting archive going back to 2005. That's at filmspottingfamily.com.